Last week we concluded John chapter 20. We are continuing on in John's gospel to the end. So we are starting chapter 21 this morning. We'll be reading from verse, verse 1 through verse 14 before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let now your written word be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word and bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be all glory and dominion and honor forever and ever. Amen. Just when you thought that the apostle John was bringing his gospel in for a landing at the end of chapter 20, he seems to decide to take another lap around the airport, as it were. This is the sense that we get, isn't it? Chapter 20 
has shared with us the details of that Easter morning and Easter evening when Jesus appeared to his disciples, save Thomas. And a week later, Jesus had again appeared to the disciples this time, including Thomas. So by the end of chapter 20, it seems as though they have all seen and believed. Their doubts have been relieved. Not only this, they have been pointed forward to the Pentecost and Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit out on them. And they were also pointed forward to the commissioning that they would receive from Jesus before he ascended to heaven. And Jesus has told them here that the Father had sent him, and so he would send them. And then John writes this in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It seems like a fitting ending, right? And perhaps it was the original ending to his gospel. But at some point before circulating his gospel, John decided he wanted to say a bit more. It just goes to show you that for 2,000 years now, preachers have continued on even when their hearers have found fitting places for them to conclude. In all seriousness, though, when we consider how John has begun his gospel with this grand prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as John begins his gospel, he lays out how this Word has become flesh, coming to dwell among us, and in doing so has brought life and light and has revealed the truth and grace of God. So listen to how John starts this epilogue. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that is, the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. The epilogue, in a way, mirrors the prologue, telling us how the Lord Jesus, in whom all things had come into existence and who had come down from heaven to reveal God to us and bring salvation, was continuing to reveal himself after his resurrection and would spread the good news of the free gift of salvation in him, even in his ascension. This isn't, then, just some throwaway stories or remarks We, as followers of Jesus, should be very interested in this chapter. We should desire to know what Jesus has revealed of himself and his will here. So over the next three Sundays, we're going to look at this epilogue as we continue to meditate on the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And my hope is that we will, as Pastor John encouraged last Sunday, have any doubts relieved and our faith bolstered as we look at even more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But even beyond placing our faith in Jesus as our risen Lord and Savior, my hope is that in in reading through this epilogue, we would come to a better understanding of God's plan of salvation for the nations and be moved to act as participants in God's redemptive work in the world. That's what this chapter is really about. That's what Jesus is revealing to us here. 
And so now let's take a look at what's happening here in this first section of the epilogue, verses 2 through 14. And as we do this, I want us to see three things. First, I want us to see the nature and scope of the church's work. The nature and scope of the church's work. Second, I want us to see the necessity of God's presence and blessing to accomplish this work. And third, I want us to see God's provision to accomplish this work. Now, this epilogue begins in a, in a very curious way. We, we find ourselves in Galilee with the disciples, at least seven of them, and I think it's safe to assume that the others aren't far away, but we only have seven mentioned here, and not even all of them by name. And indeed, this appears to be what some have referred to as the Galilee Seven. It's Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that is James and John. And if you remember, it's these three disciples who were fishing partners in Galilee before Jesus called them to be his disciples. In fact, Jesus called them right out of their boat to follow him. Luke chapter 5 tells us, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And Matthew and Mark's Gospels tell us that Andrew, who was Peter's brother, was also there fishing with them. And it's reasonable for us to assume that Andrew is one of the other two unnamed disciples here. John's Gospel tells us that around that same time in Galilee, Jesus called Philip. And Philip went to Nathanael, which is the personal name of the disciple identified as Bartholomew in the other Gospels. And both of them followed Jesus and became his disciples. Again, it's reasonable to assume that Philip is the other unnamed disciple here. Lastly, Thomas is mentioned as being with this group of disciples, which is encouraging. It, it demonstrates that he has rejoined the fellowship after his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. But tradition draws some connections between Thomas and Bartholomew. Tradition holds that both of these men later went to India to proclaim the gospel there and were both martyred there. And so it's believed that Thomas was also from Galilee. So essentially, these men have all returned home. And since John hasn't told us what the disciples were doing in Galilee except going fishing... It's led some to criticize them for returning to their homes and to their previous professions. That would be concerning, right? It's as though they were continuing to live in the defeat of Jesus' death, as though they hadn't been, as though he hadn't been raised and he hadn't breathed out the Holy Spirit on them and told them that he was sending them. It, it would seem as though they had no understanding that they had important work to attend to or that they had abandoned this work. And by returning to where they were and what they were doing before meeting Jesus. But all of that fails to recognize that Jesus himself had actually instructed them to go to Galilee. In the resurrection accounts of Matthew and Mark's Gospels, Jesus instructs Mary and the other women to go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee where they will see him. And it seems that this is exactly what they have done. They are in Galilee per Jesus' instruction. But why were they fishing? Well, what would you be doing as you awaited Jesus? Would, would you be sitting around completely idle? Would you not even eat? Well, that's what it seems like 
they are doing here. They're hungry and they're looking for food. And we see this in the question that Jesus asked them, children, do you have any fish? If we were reading it in the Greek, then we would see what Jesus is really asking. Did you catch anything to eat? And Jesus doesn't use the word for fish that we're perhaps familiar with, ichthus. He uses a word for fish which has been prepared to eat. Now, John will later use ichthus when he tells us of this miraculous catch. And John wants us to see something in this catch, and we'll get to that momentarily. But Jesus isn't talking to them of fish as though they had simply returned to their previous line of work. And what happens? Well, we are presented with a scenario that almost perfectly recalls what occurred when Peter and Andrew and James and John were first called by Jesus in Luke 5. Both of these stories speak of these men coming into shore early in the morning after an unsuccessful night of fishing. And both of these stories present Jesus instructing the fishermen on where to throw their nets. And both of these stories are miraculous stories of a spectacular catch of fish. And so you can imagine these men coming in tired after a long night of fishing, completely empty-handed, stomachs grumbling, bodies aching, physically exhausted, and they're nearing the shore and the sun is just peeking above the horizon and a voice cries out from the beach. Hey boys, you got anything to eat? Did you catch anything? And maybe they can faintly see this man standing on the shore as the dawn breaks. No, they simply reply. They, they don't have the energy to elaborate on their failure. Hey, throw your nets to the starboard side. You'll catch some there. Well, why not? And as the net hits the water, they immediately feel the weight of the fish tugging at it. It's been filled and then some. And at once, John knows who this voice on the shore belongs to. It wasn't their first experience with Jesus in this way. It's the Lord, John shouts. And Peter, being Peter, makes a mad dash to Jesus. He just tosses himself into the water as quickly as he can and swims to shore. But Jesus has come to them and revealed himself to them in this way, not only that they would immediately recognize him, but also that they would be reminded of their initial calling where Jesus had called them to follow him. And he told them on that day that he would make them fishers of men. And this brings us to our first lesson on the nature and scope of the work that the church is called to. What is this work? It's being fishers of men. This is a great mission of the church. It is working to gather in all those who belong to God. It's going out into the world, proclaiming the gospel that all may hear and have an opportunity to repent and respond in faith and be saved. The church goes out that others might be brought to life from death, that others might experience the great love of God in Jesus Christ, that others might be drawn into the church and join us in the worship of the one true God. This is the significance of this event on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't just that Jesus was appearing to them for a third time. No, he's revealing something of himself in his will to them. 
Jesus had instructed them to, to meet him here in Galilee for this very purpose. And he had a very important lesson to teach them concerning the work he would commission them to do. They, they needed to be reminded that they were originally called to follow Jesus, that they might become fishers of men. And this is how God ordained to draw in his chosen people into his kingdom. Through his church going out to declare the gospel, that great net. And the marvelous thing about this great catch in John 21 is that it demonstrates that the ingathering of the church is entirely sovereignly ordained on the one hand, but that God works through human agency on the other. Jesus ordained for those fish to be there, but the fish were caught by way of seven fishermen in a boat casting a net in obedience to Jesus. The fish didn't just swim up onto the shore by themselves. They were caught by fishermen. And the same thing applies to the church. How will people know unless we tell them? And how many are out there that God has ordained to hear the gospel message and respond in faith? I think this passage says many. John tells us that there were 153 large fish in this net. That's, that's a lot of fish. Sometimes it doesn't feel like there are many, does it? it? It might even feel like Christians are few and far between these days, and the potential candidates are even fewer. But Scripture tells us that the harvest fields are ripe. And the picture Revelation paints of the triumphant church is a glorious one. Years later, the Apostle John would be given a vision, and this is what he saw. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John saw a great multitude that no one could number. Well, the fish could be numbered, but they certainly represent that great multitude who belong to God. And it's an interesting number, isn't it? 153. It could be that John records this number simply to reveal to us the remarkable nature of this catch, to demonstrate that this indeed was a historical account. It, it could have been that they were so amazed at this huge catch that one of them took the time to count the fish. I bet if I asked many of you that have been out fishing recently, you could tell me exactly how many fish you caught. Probably wasn't 153. Uh, maybe the fish were counted in order to evenly divide the spoils among the disciples. It, it, it's very reasonable and, and a likely thing that they did take the time to count all of those fish, that this is the number of fish they brought in. It's one of those details that John loves to throw in to remind us that he was there and that these things really, truly happened. But since the early church, many, many have considered that there's something more to this number. There's been previous, various possible explanations. Perhaps the key lies with Ezekiel 47, though. It's another one of those visions of God's kingdom coming in its fullness. It presents an image of the temple of God. And, and from the temple, there's a river that flows. 
which brings life. And Ezekiel is told about this river that wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. And then it says this, fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Eglium, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea. And the interesting thing about this is that, as many of you know, letters have corresponding numerical values in Hebrew and Greek. And if you add up these places in Gedi and in Eglium, what is the total? Well, N means spring. Getty's value is 17. Eglium's value is 153. And it just so happens that 153 is the triangular value of the root of 17. And without getting too deep in the weeds, triangular numbers were of particular interest to the people of God. Or maybe it's just a coincidence that we have a prevalence of triangular numbers like 3 and 10 and 666 in the Bible. Or maybe it's just also a coincidence that these two springs add up to 17 and 153. But if these places mentioned in Ezekiel are significant, what is what is it all pointing to? What is the number 153 pointing to? And, and you don't need to know anything about triangular numbers to get this message. It's pointing to all of the places where the church is to spread the net of the gospel in the times of the fulfillment of the messianic hope. And where is it? It's across the entire world. This river goes out from the temple of God into all of the world to bring life. There are many, many people that God has ordained to be caught in the net of the gospel as attested to here in John 21 and in Ezekiel 47 and in Revelation 7. So the scope of the church's calling is worldwide. It's to the ends of the earth as Jesus will commission his disciples and us to go. The church must go near and far proclaiming the gospel. And we are meant to notice that unlike what happened in Luke 5. The nets don't break here. God's net is big enough for all. The church is big enough for all whom God has called. It won't break under the weight. There's room in God's kingdom for people of every nation, tribe, people, group, and language. So the question here for us, or the questions for us, does our vision as a church align with God's vision? Does our view of God's kingdom include this vast diversity of peoples? Do we see ourselves participating in that redemptive work? This, this isn't just apostolic work. This is the work of the church in every age, in every place until Christ comes again. Even today, the work is far from completed. Estimates range between 1 billion and 3 billion people who woke up on this Lord's Day with little to no access to the gospel. Think about that. From a conservative estimate, more than a billion people
people haven't heard the name of Jesus. They haven't heard of the one who can bring them out of darkness into marvelous light, the one who can set them free from sin and death. They haven't heard of the only one in whom there is salvation. It's time to go fishing, brothers and sisters. But the nature and scope of this work isn't the only thing we need to know. That isn't the only lesson here. Our second lesson is the necessity of the presence and blessing of God in our work. We know that God sovereignly controls all things. Was it, was it then simply coincidence that the disciples caught nothing that evening before their encounter with the risen Lord? Of course it wasn't. There was a lesson to be learned here, and it is this. We can strive and toil, but all of our striving is for nothing if we are doing it apart from the Lord. Psalm 127 puts it, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. And, and I can get, however mistaken it may be, the criticism that the disciples had simply returned to their former village and, and their, their previous professions. If we have encountered the risen Lord, then we will not walk away unchanged. We will not be capable of simply returning to our previous way of life. If we've encountered and received the risen Lord, then we have received his spirit. And if we have received his spirit, then we have been transformed and are being transformed. So we certainly shouldn't just return to life as normal. But the lesson for the disciples here is that just because they've been called to a task doesn't mean that they can just go out and get to work in their own strength, in their own creativity, according to their own plans. It doesn't work. The message here is perfectly clear. It isn't a little that the disciples can do by their own strength. It's nothing. Nothing. Hey, boys, did you catch anything? Nothing. Not one. Zero. No fish. God doesn't intend for us to do things without him. If we can do it by our own strength, then God doesn't get the glory. Our ministry is meant to show God's greatness. Our ministry is meant to exalt the name of Jesus. Our ministry is supposed to demonstrate his power. But the temptation is to go out there on our own and to use our own cleverness and to use worldly means and try to do the work. You can imagine the disciples rowing back that morning, can't you? thinking to themselves, or maybe one of them even said it out loud. It's probably Peter. Men, what are we doing? We stink at this. We can't catch a fish to save our lives. Let's hang it up. We should be out there in the world getting busy after ministry. And, and I've got an idea. What are the things that draw people in? Let's, let's build a nice building and outfit it with all sorts of things that are entertaining. And, and let's have some food there. People will always come for free food. And have you heard Mary sing? It is angelic. People will come if we've got some good music. You know? And, and all of a sudden, we have ministry operating apart from the Lord. But the ministry of the church is meant to be utterly dependent on Jesus. So ministry that's striving and toiling away without the Lord is doomed to failure. It doesn't matter how successful things look from a worldly perspective either. Sometimes the ministries that look the most successful are bearing the least spiritual fruit. So brothers and sisters, this is a call to cover our ministry in prayer. We are dependent on the Lord. It's a call for us to constantly be seeking the Lord's guidance, the Lord's direction, 
And the difference between success and failure might be, as one pastor put it, the width of a boat. We need to be willing to obey what the Lord calls us to do. Throw the net on the other side. And sometimes it sounds ridiculous, too. Listen, Jesus, we've been out all night fishing. Nothing is biting. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, the places that Jesus calls us to are difficult. Even when Jesus is present with us, we should realize that the work of ministry isn't easy. Jesus doesn't call us to go to easy places. He doesn't call us to go to comfortable places. He calls us to take the hard path. This is the race that he sets before us to run. This is one of the reasons why fishing really is a perfect illustration. You know, these guys weren't doing what most of us do when we go fishing. They're not out there zipping around in a bass boat equipped with a fish finder, a radio, a cooler, and some comfy seats. They weren't out there sipping on an ice-cold beverage from their Yeti, enjoying the spring weather. This wasn't recreation for them. It was hard work. And if they didn't catch fish, they didn't eat, and their families didn't eat. It was dangerous work. We need to understand that ministry is similar. It it is hard work. It can be dangerous work. It it is rowing against the wind and the, the waves at times. It's sometimes not moving for long periods of time, even as you exert enormous amounts of energy just not to go backwards it's facing adversities and setbacks it's dealing with failures it's coming into the shore at times feeling as though we have nothing to show for a long night of work this is the reality of the work the lord jesus calls us to and and i think that there are times when jesus lets us fail just to remind us that we can't do it on our own if we succeed every time then it'll be easy to begin to believe that we're responsible for the success of the ministry. These are things to keep in mind as we do the work of ministry here at Covenant, as we cast nets and draw them in. But the point is that we, as a church, have to be committed to seeking the Lord's guidance and blessing. We have to commit ourselves to depending on God alone. We also have to be committed to struggling and dealing with setbacks and hardships. We need to be able to do this and be joyful in the process, knowing that our labor is not in vain and that the Lord is receiving glory from our work. But despite the struggle, look at the truth being revealed here about who Jesus is for his church. These men have come back, no doubt discouraged, They left that previous evening with hungry bellies, and they've returned after a long, hard night with nothing to eat. They have to be physically exhausted and weak, but Jesus knows what they need. He's got a fire waiting for them, cooking breakfast. And we see here his deep, deep love and his abundant goodness for his people. And this is our third lesson. It's going to be brief, but it's important. God calls us to a task, and he enables us and equips us to complete the work. He's providing all, of, all that we need. His grace is sufficient to sustain us as we run this race he's called us to. And, and we see this symbolically in this meal that he's provided for his disciples. Jesus was always providing for their physical needs through meals. But we also see this in the various gifts and abilities demonstrated in this passage. It really is a picture of the church. 
You have John, the spiritually discerning one, the one who is first to recognize Jesus. And because he recognized Jesus, it sets Peter in motion. And Peter, with all of his enthusiasm, he, he is zealous for the Lord and it makes him a natural leader. He's the one who says he is going fishing and all the rest follow. And we might shake our heads disapprovingly at Peter for his rashness of jumping into the water to swim to the shore. He just leaves the other six to haul in all these fish. But, but pay attention. Don't be too quick to judge. Notice, notice what Peter does. He alone pulls in the fish once the others get the fish close enough to the shore. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has unique gifts and abilities. It, it is all been given by the Lord to do the work of ministry. All must do their part. Otherwise, a church doesn't operate as it should. It's challenging us each individually. Am I doing my part? And you might be, you might not be the one who goes and sets the nets, but you might be the one who is prayerfully discerning where to throw those nets. You might be the one who has helped purchase the nets and the boats, the equipment necessary to go do the work. You might be the one who helps pull those fish into shore once the fishermen have come close enough through gifts of hospitality and service. Are you doing your part? The harvest fields are ripe. The Lord has given us a task. Are we looking unto him, relying on him, pointing others to him? I pray that we will consider these things this day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the great privilege it is, Lord, to be set apart as your priest to do the work of ministry, the work of reconciliation, the ones who are called to go far and wide to proclaim the gospel, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't neglect this great task, but that in doing it, we would look to you, who is our, our great sustainer. And Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a vision of what you call us particularly to do here at Covenant, Lord, here in Monroe, here in Ouachita Parish, here in Louisiana, here in the United States, to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to discern clearly and then give us the courage to obey and to follow. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the apostles' creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father.